everybody, and welcome to Mailing It, the official podcast of the United States Postal Service. And I'm Carla Kirby. And I'm Jonathan Castillo. We've got a great episode lined up today about the important role the Postal Service played in shaping the history of transportation in the U.S. Think about it. The Postal Service was there from the very beginning. And as new forms of transportation were invented, we took full advantage of them to expand and improve mail service. But what I find most interesting is that the Postal Service wasn't just this passive observer as we went from horse-drawn carriages to steam-powered railroads and ships to airplanes and automobiles. That's a great point, Jonathan. As transportation has evolved in the U.S., the Postal Service offered incentives to help turn these inventions into successful industries. Here to tell us more about the Postal Service's influence on how we get around in this country is Dr. William DeWitt. Bill has been studying and teaching about transportation for decades. Most recently, he was the director and professor of the practice of transportation at the University of Denver's Transportation Institute. He is also an avid philatelist. Bill is joining us from Westchester, Pennsylvania. Bill, welcome to Mailing It. Well, hello, everyone. I'm delighted to talk about the post office's role using transportation and its evolution to shape Americans' history. Bill, we've talked a lot on this podcast about how the Postal Service grew over time and, you know, out of necessity as the country grew, uh, new territory was being added, uh, people started moving west, and the Postal Service had to move with them to make sure they could get their mail. Your research into mail transportation goes all the way back to late 1700s and I'm sure that Carl and I have a ton of questions about, you know, the history of mail transportation and how the Postal Service, uh, you know, had its influence there. But before we get into all that, uh, can I ask a question? You know, how did you get into transportation, you know, develop that that passion for logistics? Just curious. Well, I've always been fortunate to be able to work for railroads. And uh, I started out with the South Shore Line and then ended up at Burlington Northern Railroad. Uh, I actually started in 1972 when the railroad was starting and finished in 1995. Having been in the transportation business uh, and all the associated ships and trains and trucks, um, I went back, got a PhD in transportation logistics and had the opportunity for 20 years to teach it. So it's been a wonderful opportunity for my career. That's amazing. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. So all that being said, it sounds like you have a very extensive background in transportation. Could you tell us from your perspective, why it was important for the Postal Service to be able to grow with the territories back then? Well, we need to understand that mail has always been important for U.S. citizens. Uh, The population was on the east side of the Appalachians. And in the first half of the 1800s, the population started migrating west with the Erie Canal going through the Appalachian Mountains, and then national roads went across the Appalachian Mountains. But as people moved west, they wanted their mail. They wanted to know what happened to people they had left behind. They wanted to stay connected with friends and family. And the mail also gave them the opportunity to receive money legal papers, and newspapers. Newspapers were very much of high importance to the population. They were far less cost to mail, and they weighed much more than letters. 
and the population that was migrating wanted to keep up with those on the East Coast. So they demanded that Congress establish mail capability to support their migration. And that's where the post office stepped up to make sure that the mail got through. It's interesting that you mentioned the news because newspapers were a big part of the mail at the time. Uh, They were the best and in most cases, the only way for people to find out that what was happening across the country. Newspapers uh, were also the best way for Congress to reach voters. In those early days, I imagine horses were the only way to move the mail. Well, you're, you're correct. Uh, horses and horseback was the initial way that mail was moved, and it very quickly became too heavy for the postman, and they were postmen then, to carry that much mail on a horse. So they developed wagons and stagecoaches to meet the mail distribution needs of the time. But we have to remember that it took almost 20 days for a stagecoach to get to California from the East Coast. The problem with horses and stagecoaches were their limits. They could only travel so fast. They averaged around four to six miles an hour. And then the horses had to be changed. Um, You couldn't take the horses very far before you had to put a new set of horses on the stagecoach. And they were limited in terms of the weight. Um, That sounds maybe a little strange now, but newspapers were very bulky and very heavy. And they could sometimes weigh out the stagecoach at 600 pounds. And so the newspapers got left alongside because the people that were traveling on the stagecoach raised the fuss and they wanted to be there first. And of course, weather and roads were a problem. Um, Roads were non-existent. They were mud tracks, um, particularly after it rained. Um, Paving and macadam, asphalt didn't become regular till after World War I. And so there were, when there were no routes established, the Postal Service offered star route contracts, and that was stagecoach operators moving mail from one post office to another. Remember that back then, the post offices were in the local general store, sometimes in the front parlor of the house, and people had to go pick up their own mail. Can you imagine going to the post office to pick up your mail today? I certainly can. <laughs> yeah, it's called the post office box. Yeah, I love it. But Bill, let, let me ask you this: for someone that, that maybe not might not know uh, what a star route contract is, like, well, what, what? Why do they call it that? I mean, I have a couple ideas on my end, but what is a star route contract? Well, star routes were developed in the post office system to. Uh, indicate conformity to efficiency and consistency and because they always mark the contract with a star with a little line pencil with a little cross those aspects became known as the star routes and the star routes were basically post office to post office remember they are not the post offices we think of today they are local general stores they are homes uh, and the people that were running them liked that because everyone had to come pick up their mail there so the star route was basically a post office to post office capability and we'll talk about later the shift to rural free delivery so bill just for clarity if I'm operating a star route, does that mean I only transported the mail or does that include 
people or anybody else who is going in the same direction? The contract rules called for just mail to be delivered. And they went from big post offices in urban areas to little post offices and general stores. And so the post office asked the star route carriers to carry just mail. When we had stagecoaches uh, in the earlier days, stagecoaches carried not only mail until they weighed out, as well as people. And sometimes there are as many as six to 10 people on the stagecoach. Got it. So now if we're talking about, you know, you had mentioned sometimes uh, the weather and roads could be potentially a problem for, you know, some of these um, contracts and there were limitations to, you know, the horse and carriage, you know, solution. If speed, distance and capacity were the main problems, it seems that railroads would be the solution. So when do they come into the picture? Well, the railroads uh, entered the conversation about the 1830s uh, out of the Baltimore area. And in 1838, Congress designated all the railroads to be post roads. So whether it was built or not, uh, no matter where it went, it was designated a post road, which meant the post office could use it. But trains were a much higher capacity uh, weight carrying. They uh, operated in all weather. Um, and so your muddy roads and uh, wagons and stagecoaches up to the axles uh, were eliminated by the railroad's capability and they've expanded the rail system and laid tracks to connect urban, rub, urban hubs and rural cities. Um, the system reached its peak in 1916. So the post office looked at the system and said, hey, we can move mail, large quantities of mail, including newspapers, uh, over long distances from terminal to terminal. However, the railroads didn't go to the local town, the local village. And so they connected in these major terminals with horses and stagecoaches and the star routes to move out to the rural post offices. And those, as we talked about, were generally found in the local general store and the local business, which added to the impetus for the postmaster to be postmaster as well as doing commercial business. I'm curious, earlier you had mentioned that, you know, the previous transportation model of stagecoaches was only able to carry about 600 pounds. Um, just by comparison, how many pounds do you think we could carry using the railroad system? Well, when you start talking about the railroad system, you're talking about tons um, that uh, these initially wooden railroad post offices and then steel uh, had the capacity to carry large amounts of and large weights. Uh, and if they exceeded the weights in a particular train, they would then run a second train. So uh, the weight limitation on the railroads was almost non-existent. And uh, at the terminal, at the destination, you would then transfer it over to the stagecoach. Um, infrequently was horseback used because horseback was the, the idea or the image of a horseman carrying sacks of mail uh, is not very viable. Let's think about that. So, you know, with no weight limit with the train, but you still had to be offloaded. So, yeah, there still may have been some issues. So when we think about, I guess, moving the mail at that volume and then the land masses, what about using the waterways? So boats and ships have been a way of transportation for centuries. So 
What about using those for moving mail long distances? When did the waterways come into play? Well, steamboats came in about the same time as locomotives, uh, steam locomotives. So you had a conversion from horse to uh, steam powered. And steamboats were used um, starting with Bolton on the Hudson River in the 1800s. But there was a limitation. Most of the interior waterways in the United States flow north and south, uh, the Hudson River, the Mississippi River. And so uh, they did not reach a large set of the population. And uh, so where they functioned, where they had uh, water uh, and rivers, they worked very well. But for the rest of the country, and remember that the migration was westward. It was an east-west migration. And uh, so the waterways didn't reach those people. Congress did in 1823 designate all the navigable waters as post roads. Uh, That meant the post office could use them, but there was a very limited number of places that the waterways worked. If you think about the U.S. and you think about the Mississippi River, you're talking about uh, St. Paul uh, to Memphis to uh, uh, Natchez uh, on down to New Orleans, uh, not terribly large populations, and the populations were east and west of the river. And uh, so um, the exception was that steamboats carried mail uh, down around the Gulf of Mexico, on the Mobile in New Orleans, and they also went down to the Isthmus of Panama. And, uh, of course, they had a tremendous challenge getting across the isthmus uh, because of all the disease and and going on there. They went to the Pacific Ocean, uh, about 25, 30 miles, and picked up steamboats that went up the Pacific Rim to California and the Oregon Territory. So the steamboats were viable um, because steam power changed the ability for boats to go upstream. Uh, from about the 1840s until about the Civil War. And uh, and then the railroads became more prevalent as they went east-west and reached the migration. Yeah, it really sounds like uh, the steamboats might have been a little bit inefficient there. Would you characterize it <laughs> that way? Well, I, I think that the... To be fair, the steamboats were efficient. Uh, They had uh, steam-powered capability to move the boats. The problem with when you talk about efficiency is they could not reach the east-west migration. Uh, Once you hit the Mississippi River, um, there's very few rivers, a couple, Missouri and et cetera, that uh, reach westward. But most of the population that was moving and migrating didn't settle near the rivers. And so uh, the, the river boats, the steamboats were efficient for the territory they covered, but they could not reach the population that was demanding mail. Right. And and it seems like the Postal Service's ability to use, you know, faster, better ways to move mail really did help the country grow uh, in those early formative years. So, you know, we're talking about, you know, the steamboat wasn't able to, you know, assist in that east-west migration. But, you know, so what, what did actually happen when, you know, settlers reached the West Coast? How was the Postal Service able to deliver mail thousands of miles coast to coast? That's a good question. The post office was challenged by uh, getting the mail to California, to the Oregon Territory, which was a territory then, not a state. 
Um, they did move stagecoaches. Um, they took about 20 days to get to California. Uh, and uh, the first one, of course, was the Butterfield uh, on the southern route. Um, but they then went uh, to the central route. And the stagecoach, until the railroads came in, uh, was about a 20-day trip. I'd, I'd be remiss not to mention the experiment with the Pony Express. Uh, it only lasted 18 months from 1860 to 1861. And the telegraph was being built alongside it and replaced it. And uh, the telegraph, of course, could send messages very quickly uh, and get messages to the West Coast much quicker than the Pony Express. And uh, that was basically the downside for the Pony Express was the telegraph. Mm. I would I would expect yeah. that the telegraph is going to get there quicker than the man on the horse. Just, yeah, just my thought. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit faster, I think. And, and then it also, the Pony Express, I think, was rather expensive for that time as well, right? And I would think they would have limited capacity too. Mm-hmm. So when all we- of that's true, um, but <laughs> if you had high value uh, documents. Uh, For example, uh, Lincoln's advice uh, to the country uh, from his uh, inauguration, Uh, if you had funds going across the country, uh, all of that was worth the cost of the Pony Express. And remember, it could get across in 10 days. Uh, Telegraph was a little hard to send money, although uh, you could use uh, money uh, express from uh, the various banks that were out there. And it also sounds like the Postal Service, you know, uh as they took advantage of that, you know, transcontinental railroad. Now they were, I think you were, you know, kind of headed down this road, able to move thousands of miles, forget about 20 days, forget about 10 days in a matter of days, right? Well, and that's the case, of course, uh, the transcontinental railroad, as we call it, from the Mississippi River or the Missouri to uh, the West Coast um, was done in 1869. And it wasn't long after that, that the mail uh, expanded across the country. The railroads built a tremendous amount of uh, rail miles, route miles, and uh, those peaked in the 1916 timeframe. So uh, at that point, you're right, the mail could be moved instead of days and months, could now be moved in a matter of hours, and you could get to the West Coast in two or three days. So that's interesting how much of an impact that the trains had on us being able to move the mail uh, more efficiently. But it seems like the trains then would have an issue with being able to reach places. So how did the Postal Service, I guess, utilize the trains and then get to new communities that maybe didn't have railways yet? How did that connect at the local level? Well, remember that the uh postal system had the star routes in place, and uh, those took mail from post office to post office. Some of the post offices were very small uh, in very remote rural areas, and the trains could only go to the major terminals, and at that point, they loaded onto the star routes to the stagecoaches, etc., and got it out to the post offices. Now, People in the cities got free city delivery in about 1860s. Um, for outside of the city, the rural people started to complain and said, wait a minute, uh, if they have free delivery in the cities, we want free delivery out in the country. And so rural free delivery, RFD, 
was established in the late 1890s and became widespread in the early 1900s. Um, horses and carriages remained the primary way to get mail out. But with RFD, rural free delivery, we ended up with the mail being delivered direct to a house. And that then cut down tremendously on the star route. Uh, no longer were you having to go to a post office where you had to show up uh, and pick up your mail. They now delivered it to the house, as is done across the country. And uh, you continue to have the postal system evolve with uh, a combination of rail uh, that lasted until the mid-1900s, uh, a little bit of the star routes, some of the RFD, uh, as the post office sorted out the best and most efficient process to get mail delivered. And it sounds like with all that population growth um, and to get the mail to people living in cities out in the country, it really sounds like it, there's a, there was a new mode of transportation that was needed at this point, yeah? Well, absolutely. Uh, we had moved from horses to steam uh, with the steamboats and the locomotives, and then we went to the internal combustion engine, and uh, that's where automobiles and trucks come into play. Uh, post office evaluated gas-powered and electric vehicles at the turn of the 20th century, but ultimately gas-powered vehicles prevailed in the marketplace, and that's the direction the Postal Service went at the time. Uh, World War One had trucks pretty well standardized. They no longer were just a wagon with a motor thrown on it. And uh, they emerged as a way trucks did to move a large amount of cargo faster than ever before. The railroads had peaked in 1916. They'd gone about as far as they could. And trucks went places railroads could not. So, of course, another major breakthrough in transportation was emerging at the time when we look at the U.S. Air Mail Service, officially beginning in 1918, of course, there weren't any commercial airplanes at the time or airlines or airports. That meant the post office department had to build airfields and supply its own pilots, planes, and mechanics. So all that being said, how big was our influence on aviation? Well, the post office, uh, and it was the post office department, um, wanted to get air moving. Uh, remember that the people, the recipients of the mail, wanted to have the mail move at the same speed that they could. And so if you had people hit climbing on airliners to move, they wanted the air postal to be able to move at the same speed. And so what the post office did, and we're talking about after World War One, the that was the first time that airplanes had been used to any extent, um, and they started flying uh, mail. Uh, in fact, Charles Lindbergh, uh, who's known for his solo transatlantic flight in 1927, was one of the first airmail pilots. And the post office didn't have a system to work against. They did not have the rail network. And so they started encouraging the airlines to take on mail as well as passengers. And they, for a while, actually used the uh, uh, military to move some of that, but then found that they wanted to go on the private sector. And so they set up airmail contracts. Uh, they merged passenger and mail service um, and uh, they actively promoted uh, airlines to uh, begin carrying mail. Now, today, 19, after 1977, 
you can no longer airmail a domestic letter. So the airmail was a time where the post office was trying to get speed and distance uh, to match the people, the public that was out there. Um, and today, if you go to a post office and ask for airmail stamp for a domestic movement, uh, you can't purchase it and it doesn't move that way. Uh, it may move by air, but um, we don't recognize that and we don't see it. We don't pay a separate fee for it. That's very interesting, Bill. Today, trucks are a major emphasis of the Postal Service's delivery network and a big part of the Postmaster General's Delivering for America 10-year plan. For us, logistics is less about new forms of transportation and I think more about being as, as efficient as possible with the vehicles that we do have. How has that strategy reflected larger trends in the transportation industry? Well, I think the Postal Service is once again taking the lead uh, that uh, the change in transportation techniques or mechanisms has pretty well um, slowed down. Uh, Trucks are definitely the range of the future. But what has been brought in, and I think the post office is doing a good job with this, is the digital communications and the digital coordination that is going on. Um, logistics uh, during my time uh, referred to ships and containers and trains and containers and trucks, uh, but now it's the individual piece of mail or package. And so the focus is on individual shipments. You can use information to make sure you're filling the trucks with mail, but you have to make sure that the mail is going to the right place as efficiently as possible. Wow. A lot of great information there. Thank you so much, Bill. It was a pleasure having you on the call. Yes, Bill. Thank you. I have absolutely learned something today. It's always great to pick up some new nuggets uh, at each podcast, but we definitely appreciate you joining us today. Yes, learned a lot. Thank you for having me. I've appreciated it. So now we're ready for another Did You Know, our segment that reveals some lesser-known facts about the Postal Service. Jonathan, do you want to start us off? Sure thing. Did you know that during one decade in the 1800s, there were two post office departments headed by two different postmasters general? Hmm, I have a feeling this is about the Civil War. That's right. From 1861 to 1865, the Confederate States of America, or CSA, operated its own post office department. Even though the CSA formed its post office department even before the Civil War started, it took a little while to get things going. For one thing, they had no supplies. The Confederate Postmaster General recruited Southerners and sympathizers from the U.S. Post Office Department in Washington who brought their own maps, reports, forms, and plans with them. They also started out doing business with U.S. or Union money and stamps because most printers that could handle that work were in the North. Well, I'm sure their supplies didn't last very long. Right. Those stamps ran out pretty quickly, and local postmasters in the South were forced to create provisional stamps or just write paid by hand on envelopes. Eventually, in October of 1861, the Confederate Post Office Department got its own stamps. Some of them featured founding fathers like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. After the war, federal mail service was gradually restored as the Union took back territories, but it took a while. In fact, 
By November of 1866, a year and a half after the war ended, service had been restored at only about 36% of post offices that had operated in the South prior to the war. So, what do you have for us, Carla? For mine, I'd like to shift to the present day and call out some of the things that the Postal Service is doing to become more sustainable. Okay, let's hear it. Okay. Did you know that our Los Angeles mail processing facility has a solar power generation system consisting of more than 25,000 solar panels? That is currently our largest solar generator at 8.8 megawatts of electricity. Other facilities have since taken advantage of solar power. In fiscal 2020, we added to our on-site renewable energy production with a solar installation in New Jersey. Our Belmar, New Jersey Processing and Distribution Center includes more than 13,000 solar panels with a capacity to generate 4.26 megawatts. That installation is expected to generate over 7,000 megawatt hours annually, which is enough electricity to power 986 homes each year. That's a lot of megawatt hours. It absolutely is. (laughs) And that wraps up this episode of Did You Know? So, you know, great episode today. I learned more about transportation than I ever anticipated, but it was very interesting to hear about how the Postal Service has driven transportation from stagecoaches to the railroads to using steamboats, doing air mail. Um, What did you take away from today's episode? Yeah, it was absolutely incredible to learn about how throughout the course of history in our country, the Postal Service has really been front and center in driving, you know, that kind of expansion. We were moving out west, uh, making sure that we get the people their mail and using whatever technology is most advanced at that time. You know, we still continue to do that to this day. So it's really, uh, it, for me, that was the big takeaway. I think one of the most polarizing things is to hear how we went from picking up your mail at a storefront to now delivering to 163 163 million homes on almost a daily basis. Definitely polarizing difference. Absolutely. That's all for this episode of Mailing It. Don't forget to subscribe to Mailing It wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss any episodes. And follow along on Instagram at U.S. Postal Service, X, formerly known as Twitter, at USPS, and on Facebook. And we just want to thank Bill one more time for being our guest, along with our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us. 